the Accidental Engineer. Welcome all, Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Minnie Ingersoll. Uh, for our audience that don't know you, Minnie, do you mind introducing, I guess, what you're up to now? Because you have some exciting news. Yeah, uh, thanks Max. I, um, I just moved to LA and uh, joined a early stage venture capital firm called 10110 in LA. And before that, I started my own company called Shift. It's an online marketplace for used cars. And I've been doing that uh, for the past five years. We started in 2013 and did a C to Series A, Series B, a Series C, and Series D. And it kind of grew up. And it was, um, it was a time that I could move to LA, so I did that. And be before that, uh, I was Google product manager for many years. And by many years, I want to just call out Minnie's level of experience. She was at Google for nearly 12 years right? Uh, in the Bay Area here. Uh, when, that's a, a large part, that's a majority of Google as a company's lifetime. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure we can get to that, but one of the pieces of vo vocabulary that I didn't know before meeting you that I think a lot of our audience might not be familiar with is the word operator. Yeah. No, no. I wasn't actually familiar with it until recently. Um, an operator, so I think I said that I was uh, a venture capitalist operator. or um, So a lot of venture capitalists, I think maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, venture capitalists might have come from a financial background. Um, they were good at understanding the metrics, looking at a spreadsheet. And I think it was Andreessen Horowitz who really started with this we believe that to be a good investor, you need to first be a good operator, meaning you've run a company, you've been through the startup process yourself, um, so you can really help teams. So I am an operator turned investor. So I think one of the things that would be really interesting to hear about is how maybe the work experience changes as a founder of a company over a long window of time, like five years that you were at Shift, and it would be interesting to hear, maybe from when you first started to when you've now left, what kinds of uh, variety of problems changed from the fifth year to the zeroth year? Sure. Well, so I think the most conventional wisdom thing that I've heard is uh, that your job as founders are to find product market fit, not run out of money, and not fight with your co-founders. And those are your main three things you're supposed to do. And to some degree, that's kind of continuously true. Um, so kind of at any stage, you aren't supposed to uh, run out of money or fight with your co-founders. Um, and I think finding market, product market fit to some degree is also uh, a continuous process. But, um, but certainly the challenges at the earlier stages um, when, for us, so finding product market fit or defining the vision um, is actually really an exercise in almost like scoping what the vision is. So if you say our vision is to provide a better way to buy and sell used cars, but there's a lot more to what we set out to do. We didn't want to be a dealer, for instance. We wanted to do this without um, a huge workforce. We wanted to be much more like a gig economy thing. We wanted to bring cars to your house. Well, which parts of that are actually in the vision and which are not part of the vision? Like, where can you compromise? And actually figuring out, when you say vision, what that means. Like, this is our vision, and then figuring out where sort of the lines are was a really big part of the early stage of our process. Um, but 
as we scaled, um, I realized that probably 50, 60% of my job was interviewing people, recruiting people, not just interviewing, but actually recruiting. So very actively going out and sourcing people. And that also didn't really change um, because we were a venture-backed business. On that note, from the, the difference between fifth and zeroth year, one of, the, one of the other responsibilities, as I understand it, that's super important as an executive in a startup is the recruiting process and the prioritizing it as a, as, in terms of time, in terms of financial capital. How does recruiting change from zeroth year to fifth year? It's, it's sort of a function of how, much, how fast you're growing. Uh, but for me, ballpark, it was probably 50% of my job for most of the time I was there. Maybe it wasn't entirely that much, but it, it was a lot of that. And I think, um, uh, you know, to some degree, your first hires, you know, you set the culture. It's super important. Um, and we would spend, you know, for our early hires, we might spend six months going after someone. So it was really a lot more outbound than it was inbound for us. We would just say, who was the best person we worked with that, like, we decided we wanted the director of engineering from Dropbox. He was the best person we knew. It took us a long time to convince him that he wanted to join us. Um, whereas I think to some degree, once you're a little bit more established, you might um, be able to get more inbound. But we were pretty picky, so it was, a, it was a pretty outbound experience for us. One of the things I'm curious about, and I'm guessing our audience are also curious about, is whether now moving to 10110 Ventures in Los Angeles, different job market, different mm -hmm. recruiting environment, are 10110 Ventures investments kind of localized to Southern California? Or is, that, is there like some geographic proximity that helps yeah. uh, in VC? I'm not familiar, so. Yeah, no, it's a totally fair question. And the answer to some degree is that I'm still learning. Um, but 10110, I'd say about 60% of our portfolio right now is LA-based because there's definitely a, a huge advantage, um, especially in the early stages, of really getting to know the entrepreneurs almost before it's a big company. So before it's on everyone's radar, getting to know those, those early stage teams. What's interesting though is I do think there's a number of differences between the LA and the San Francisco market. So I could you know, chat about what I've seen early, early days. Yes, please. Um, well, so this is my first, some of my early impressions. Uh, to some degree, there is less capital in LA. So that, that's actually just a fact. There is less capital available. What I think that leads to is a lot of the entrepreneurs have much better revenues in LA. So I keep being really impressed because we're looking at someone who's pre-Series A, so they're looking to raise their seed round, but they've already got $3 million in revenue, uh, which is really strong revenue to have not yet raised their seed. Um, so I keep being quite impressed, but I think that's a function of not having capital available from the venture market. The flip side of that, though, is I think that I don't quite need as many crazy, huge dreamers because they're a little bit more grounded in reality. They have revenues, they've built a business. Um, they're not thinking that the next move is to land their business on an asteroid shooting through space. And so, um, and to some degree as a venture capitalist, uh, you need to be betting on those huge growth, huge idea things. So, um, so I'm definitely interested in some of the coaching I think I'm doing with entrepreneurs is, hey, how to like take this idea and like think 10x, think 100x about the potential here. One of the other great reasons to have you on the show is having gotten your computer science undergraduate from Stanford, is that right? That's true. 
And at the time, desktop computing was a great deal bigger than it now is yeah. with mobile computing. Uh, I know you learned on Pascal, the programming language. Uh, one of the things I think our audience will be curious about is now when you find yourself in the workplace and VC as an entrepreneur, uh, how many people in the room often have computer science degrees or like what's kind of like the I really I realize this is a hard thing to quantify and every room is different. Yeah. But it, are, are computer science degrees table stakes for many roles that you've seen? Um, Google, it really was a table stakes sort of thing. That, so I was a product manager, not an engineer, but they really, especially in the early days, Google expected the product managers to have computer science degrees. And I actually don't really agree with that, nor do I, I don't think it's necessarily a great practice. Um, as you say, my, my degree's in computer science and it's in Pascal. And it turns out there's not a huge market for Pascal programmers right now. Um, and so, so I don't think it's a prerequisite because I actually think technology is changing so fast that what's important is that you are up to speed on what's going on today. Um, the other thing about the LA market that I find quite interesting is there are a lot of great entrepreneurs and great businesses being built um, that are that are brand based. There are a lot of D 2 C. There's a lot of people who say like I understand how people consume, how they consume media, how they consume e-commerce, um, as opposed to like really nerdy entrepreneurs who their moat might be more of a a, a technical moat. At ten one ten, we tend to invest in people who are more engineers turned entrepreneurs. So probably around our table, it's disproportionately high number of folks who do have, whether it's computer science degrees or some other technical degree. With regards to the portfolio that 10110 holds now and is looking to hold in the future, uh, what are what can we talk about some of those companies that are in your guys' portfolio and then maybe what you guys are looking at in the future? Sure. Um, so 10110 started with a really strong focus on proprietary data. And so uh, the two co-founders uh, are extremely, they really believe that proprietary data is the moat that allows business models to succeed. Um, but nowadays I would say that proprietary data to some degree is table stakes. So a lot of our companies, you wouldn't look at them and say, oh, this company is primarily about proprietary data. Um, in fact, there is a lot of proprietary data going on. Um, so uh, in terms of companies, uh, we have a company that's doing extremely well that's a restaurant, I would almost say like front office aggregator, I don't know that you'd call it the front office, but essentially restaurants nowadays, they'll have five tablets if you go into them and a tablet from Uber Eats, a tablet from Postmates, a tablet from all the delivery, DoorDash, um, and this service, OrderMark, they consolidate all of that into one tablet that integrates with the printer and just solves the restaurant's problem. Um, they end up with a lot of interesting data in the process of doing that, um, but you wouldn't think of it necessarily as a data play, but they've got great product market fit. Restaurants are now coming to them. It makes a lot of sense. Um, another company I would highlight, which doesn't sound like data, but it really is, is a company called Avisair um, that is about helping small businesses um, win government contracts. And it turns out that there's a lot of government contracts that um, you need to get certified that you qualify as a small business, as a minority-owned business, um, as, a, as a woman-owned business. Um, 
And they're creating almost like the LinkedIn for small businesses to win government contracts. Mm -hmm. So um, they end up with a ton of data about all the small businesses in the community. I know, uh, actually have used one specific company that 10110 invested in and they later were acquired by Google as part of the Firebase product was called DivShot. And they were LA based company that uh, provided static site hosting. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I actually, in one of my previous jobs, used them and I recall them and I recall knowing they were an LA startup and I remember that being a attractive novelty. Yeah. Not in the decision making of uh, whether to buy from them or not, but it was a it was a cool thing to connect that they're they were a part of ten one ten. Yeah, well ten one ten Gil Elbaz is one of the founders of ten one ten. And he's sort of the most OG of the OG LA tech scene. He ran Google, he opened and ran Google's LA office. Okay. So he's been around for a while. We, we acquired his company in 2003, we being Google, um, and it became AdSense. So definitely um, 10 has been in the, in the mix in LA for a long time. Speaking of Google and in LA, uh, do you mind sharing for our audience the types of things that you worked on in the time span you worked at Google? Yeah. So. One of the things I like about Google is Google is trying to be innovative and disruptive of itself um, or, or yeah, be innovative, I guess is the right word. And so in the course of working there for 11 plus years, I worked on many different things. So I started as a product manager on the billing system, which in 2002, we hadn't gone public. So we were two years pre IPO and it's a multi-billion dollar company based on 20 cent increments. And it turns out that when you're trying to collect the logs from all the servers that are all over the world and uh, get that into Oracle to, to get your invoices out, it's, it's actually a large challenge. Um, I did that for many years. I really liked it. It suited me, but it wasn't sort of, a, I guess, a sexy product management role traditionally yeah. to be like, I'm the PM on billing. Yeah. Um, so I briefly moved into Gmail, which was, this was a few, you know, number of years later, Gmail was really taking off. Um, but the Gmail engineering team was based in Seattle and I was based in Mountain View. And this was about the time that Google was on everyone's minds. Maybe this is 2005 that Google was really taking off. We'd IPO'd a year ago and everyone always used to come up to me and say, isn't Google the greatest place to work? And I used to think right now, my engineering team's in a different city. We're behind schedule. I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I don't necessarily, you know, get along with my boss right now. Um, and it isn't, doesn't really feel like the greatest place to work to me, or it's still hard. It was just a slog. Um, and that's when I really changed into a new role, which was um, I got the access team going at Google, which the access team was about getting more people online at faster speeds and lower prices. And it was a really exciting journey. And I did that for many years. I think to add some historical context to what I know of Google uh, getting involved in this initiative of enabling more people to be on the internet on faster speeds, lower latency. Uh, obviously, there's the Google Fiber project, which I believe you were involved in. Yeah. Uh, do you mind telling our audience a little bit about it? Yeah. So when we started with Access, uh, some of what we were trying to do was really catalyze the industry, not just build it all out ourselves. And so I'm going to back up from Google Fiber and go to Muni Wi-Fi for a second, which was the first project that we did on Access. So the first project I did on Access, we were trying to build out free Wi-Fi across San Francisco. We had $10 million from the philanthropic Google.org budget. I was in Google.org for a long time. And we wanted to build free Wi-Fi to anyone who wanted to use it. And the city said, no, thanks. And, um, <laughs> 
and it, but it was, we approached it wrong. I didn't understand. Like I, I had a team full of engineers and we thought so much about signal propagation and where we would have to put our nodes um, in order to cover the whole city. And we really hadn't thought about politics. And that was very naive for us to come in and think we're going to talk about signal propagation and not talk about um, the politics of doing something in a city where we need to use mounting assets, meaning like telephone poles. Mm -hmm. So with Google Fiber, we approached it quite differently. It was a similar team, but we'd, uh, we'd learned some lessons. And so we thought this is a great way to really showcase what's possible if you have gigabit speeds um, and net neutrality built in. And so that was kind of the DNA that we started with when we approached Google Fiber. Um, it then since became much more of a business model for Google, which is let's really build this out in a more, um, yeah, like more of a business. But when we started, it was just a, maybe if Google says we can do this, then maybe that'll be a little kick in the pants for the cable and ISP providers to um, step up their game in terms of the service that they're offering customers across the country. Because right now, you know, as you know, there's you can get internet from your cable provider, but they're not competing with each other because they are geographically separate each cable provider. So you're not like getting the in a lot of cities. In San Francisco, of course, there's more options, but in a lot of places, it's it's quite a monopoly. So we're trying to shake that up a bit. Speaking of kicks in the pants, <laughs> I know there was the yes. there was the initiative to participate in the wireless spectrum auctions. Yes, and I know this is a very specific kick in the pants because. At, at that point in time, the FCC, I believe, was auctioning off uh, its, you know, five-year, I'm, I'm not sure how long these contracts are, for tele telecommunication companies to be able to um, resell the part of the radio spectrum uh, that they are buying a license for from the FCC. And I know Google made, it, made a strong indication of getting into that business and ultimately didn't. Yeah. Uh, was that also part of Access? That was part of Access. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, no, that was one of the most exciting projects I worked on. But we didn't end up buying the Spectrum, so it's, you know, the legacy doesn't live on. I still think it would have been a great move for Google to buy the Spectrum. So essentially, there's just limited... Uh, spectrum that that exists in the world and so to some degree owning it if you own good spectrum it's like owning great beachfront property like it it's never we're not gonna use we're not gonna as a society start using less bandwidth for for what we're building and so uh, this was um, this was a chance to purchase a ton of spectrum but the FCC was hesitant to put uh, net neutrality rules on the spectrum because they said if we put the net neutrality rules on the spectrum, then it's not going to be as valuable. It won't sell for as much. And Google, Eric Schmidt at the time was the CEO, and he called bullshit on that, uh, if I'm allowed to say that. Uh, yeah, you are. <laughs> he said, you know what, I'm going to, uh, I want to call bullshit, like it's still going to sell for as much. But we didn't know internally, we were at um, a meeting, and we didn't know how to tell the FCC that no, it'll still be as valuable even if it has net neutrality. And so. Like the most obvious thing, I remember Rick Witt was one of the people on the team. He said, you know what, just publish a blog post saying that we will bid up to what we consider fair market value and just sign it Eric Schmidt, just publish a blog, just say that. So Eric did. He said, if you put net neutrality on it, we will bid at least, I think it was $3.4 billion. We'll just bid it at least that much because the way the auction works is it's a, it's a multi-round auction. So he said, we'll bid at least $3.4 billion and 
will take it at that value or someone will bid more than that and that's kind of what we consider fair market value. So the FCC said okay, they put the um, net neutrality restrictions on the spectrum and then our team had to then go to the board and ask for up to, we said we'd like the authority to bid up to five billion dollars. So nowadays, like when you go to Sand Hill Road and you're trying to raise your Series A and you're asking for eight million dollars, I'm like, look, we had to go ask for five billion dollars, and um, and we got authorized to bid that amount, and uh, it's a multi-round bidding, and you have to maintain your eligibility uh, throughout the different rounds, and the spectrum is kind of carta up in different chunks. And I remember it was Super Bowl weekend, and on that Friday, um, we had the high bid going into the weekend, and we weren't sure whether anyone else actually had the eligibility to to outbid us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we thought we might have just won it. We went through the long weekend. I think it was a long weekend for some reason. And um, it turns out that one other person uh, came in right above above what we had bid and we had decided that was our last bid. Um, but you don't know whether anyone has eligibility and you don't know who it was until later and it was Verizon. And so it went to Verizon, which was sort of our least um, preferred outcome. but. It was exciting for a while. This I realize since that point in your career, you you know spent five years on growing a startup and are now going into VC. I know this topic is coming up again. I think Amazon is interested in getting into the space of uh, gray zones mm. in the in the radio frequency spectrum, uh, basically unused parts of the radio spectrum that are in between maybe two parts of the spectrum. Um, so there's an area that's uh, disallowed for use because uh, they want to provide buffer so that signal doesn't, as I understand it, <laughs> I might be butchering this description, but uh, I, know, I know this is a super hot topic as it relates to growing uh, bandwidth usage and growing availability of bandwidth to U.S. consumers yeah. where it might not be as good as elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Um, is it a topic you still follow? Yeah, I don't follow it super closely, but I think some of the principles remain the same. So um, having more spectrum available for unlicensed use is super important and not having spectrum all in the hands of a couple of providers who then can have sort of monopolistic practices, which is really important. So I think that the United States really needs to think about either putting restrictions on the use so that there is some form of net neutrality, some regulation, but I think regulation is really tricky for government to do. So having spectrum that's available for unlicensed use, which is how we all get our Wi-Fi, how our baby monitors work, how our garage doors work. Um, so having more of that, I think, will probably be something that would be um, useful to think about. Hearing, hearing about your background has been really, I think, informational for a lot of people who might not know what it might have been like to work at Google from very early on to now, or up in, for the first, well, for an audience that doesn't know, uh, how soon after inception of the company of Google did you join? Um, that's a good question. So I joined in 02. There were about 500 people there when I joined. So I joined, you know, 499 people too late or something. No, uh, no um, <laughs> but I think it had actually been around for maybe four years. I think it started in 98, um, but it was still pretty early. It was still definitely yeah. a rocket ship. I think the one thing I would add to, to sort of my background is that uh, my mom says I look good on paper. Uh, you know, I've got Google, I, I went to Stanford Computer Science, I started my own company and we raised a lot of money, but I think that sometimes that obscures the fact that it's it's been an 
up and to the right like a roller coaster and sometimes backwards and sometimes upside down and that uh that it's i i think there's a tendency in today's world to compare your insides to other people's outsides and um it's been an amazing ride but there've been a lot of times that have been a real slog like the the way to be a successful product manager at Google for 11 years is you have to have stayed for 11 years and uh same thing with starting a company which is having to find a way to sort of navigate that and someone told me early in my um startup career which uh, they said it's a marathon not a sprint and figuring out how to how to structure your life so that you can make it a marathon not a sprint was um important for me well, maybe we can work in a surf analogy here. Oh yeah. Uh, do you have one? No, I don't. <laughs> uh, something about riding the wave, like yeah. getting to yeah, locals. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, yeah. I I didn't have an idea where I was going with that one. No, I like it though. Um, but I just I think it's it's important to maintain the life balance, and so for me. Um, having a family has been a big part of that and going surfing has been another big part of that, which is it helps me stay kind of balanced. Not, you can't really be stressed out about your PowerPoint if you're about to drown. Fair so, enough. So, or your kids are about to drown themselves. Either way, it's a good distraction from the craziness that is often startup life. Well, I think we all wish you the best as you and your family move down to LA. Thanks, it's a big uh, move. Perhaps one day we might be able to record another episode in LA. Awesome. But yeah. Max, this is great. Thanks for, thanks for doing it. Absolutely. Thanks. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.